Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. It is Thursday, October 26th, 2017. I'm Scott Bland, your host, and you are listening to Politico's Nerdcast. We are going to start off this week talking about Senator Jeff Flake's bombshell retirement announcement. Uh, he took to the Senate floor on Tuesday to deliver a uh, pretty incredible indictment of the Republican Party and President Donald Trump and uh, uh, colleagues within the party not doing enough to speak up against uh, what, what he feels are, are Trump's misdeeds and, and bad actions. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, what that means for Republicans in Washington and how, uh, through some combination of President Trump's actions and uh, these people just deciding to get up and leave, Trump is essentially purging final never-Trump elements out of the, certainly at least the elected positions in the federal Republican Party. We're also going to talk about what Flake's retirement will mean for the Senate race in Arizona. That's one of the big battleground Senate races that we've been looking at for 2018. And now it's going to be the only big open battleground Senate race of 2018. So we'll talk about some of the cast of characters involved there and some of the people who we think might get involved now that Flake has announced he's retiring. And we're going to close out this week talking about uh, something pretty wonky. We're going to talk about digital advertising disclosure. That's become a big issue in politics following the revelations that Russian companies placed ads on Facebook and other digital platforms about the 2016 presidential elections. Uh, and that's come out during the broader investigation into Russian meddling in the election. And it has sparked uh, some action by uh, companies like Facebook and Twitter, by the Federal Election Commission, but also by members of Congress who are introducing legislation to uh, regulate political digital ads a little bit closer. And so we're going to have two of our ace tech reporters from Politico on to talk a little bit about what's in that legislation and whether or not it might pass. A couple quick housekeeping notes before we jump into all of that. Remember, you can email us with questions at nerdcast at politico.com. And please remember to subscribe, rate us, and write written reviews of the Nerdcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. We love getting your feedback. It helps us make the show better and, at the end of the day, helps us uh, make Nerdcast Nation even bigger. So please subscribe, rate us, and write written reviews of the Nerdcast. All right. I'm going to start off this week by welcoming to the podcast national political reporter Alex Eisenstadt. Alex, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. And campaign pro reporter Kevin Robillard, back for another tour of duty. Kevin, thank you for being here as well. Great to be on. All right, so our first segment this week, you guys were diverted from you know whatever your your big midweek plans were and wrote uh, three or four stories between you on the retirement of Arizona Senator Jeff Flake. And our first data point uh, on that subject is 18%. And that was Flake's approval rating in Arizona in recent private polling, according to the New York Times, before Flake pulled the plug on his re-election campaign in a dramatic Senate floor speech and a series of interviews Tuesday. Here's what he had to say on CNN. It's just a very narrow path for a Republican like me uh, in today's Republican Party to, uh, to get the nomination. Uh, I would have to run uh, a campaign that uh, 
that I couldn't be proud of, frankly, uh, to win re-election, and, and I chose not to do that. Uh, so, Alex, Flake is choosing to retire, but he's describing the circumstances as beyond his control. And in your story on Wednesday, you put this in the context of a broader Trumpian purge, is what you called it, of the Republican Party. What do you mean by that? Well, you have really two kinds of people, one who are uh, in Congress who are on board with the Trump Trump agenda or who are not really willing to speak out against him. And that really is probably the majority of Republicans on Capitol Hill. And then you have the other group that is really not willing to play ball with him. And those people are getting out of Dodge increasingly, not just people like Jeff Flake or Bob Corker, but really there are some people in the House like Dave Reichert, Eliana ross and uh, and, and, and some other House, House members like Charlie Dent, what they're saying is, is look, they don't know how much longer Trump is going to be in the White House, but they don't really want to play ball with him. and They don't really like what's going on, and they don't like necessarily the silence of their colleagues as it relates to how Trump is conducting himself in the White House. And that's interesting. The Flake, Flake's criticism of Trump uh, brought a number of uh, rejoinders from Trump on Twitter and elsewhere and essentially had the, as as we see in, in, in that poll we just talked about, had the effect of tanking his popularity at home. These folks in, in the House that you're talking about, or maybe even Bob Corker, actually, they weren't facing the same thing. They weren't facing right. a... A, an imminent electoral threat. Right. Corker was up for re-election in 2018, and who knows what would have happened, but he his numbers were still fine when he retired. But these House members were not, you know, it's not like they were going to be defeated or leave. Right, right. Well, they could, some of them could have had some, some tough races in, in 2018. Some of them could have had primaries, potentially. It would have not been likely to, to have seen Trump go to their districts and campaign against him, much as what he did with Jeff Flake, where he literally got on, a, the president literally got on a plane, flew to Arizona, and then bashed Jeff Flake at a rally in Arizona. That is something that actually happened in 2017. <laughs> but some of these guys did face the pro- in the House did face the prospect of primaries, and and in other cases they faced the reality that they were going to have to spend their time dealing with the Trump agenda uh, in 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 the chamber. One other note uh, here, I think that one interesting person to talk about in this context is is Martha Roby, uh, Alabama Congresswoman. During the campaign, during the 2016 campaign, she really came out pretty forcefully against the president uh, post-Access Hollywood, said that his behavior was unacceptable, called for him to get out of the race. Then fast forward to 2017, Trump is in the White House, and all of a sudden Martha Roby faces a primary challenger in the form of uh, a guy by the name of Barry Moore, who, is, who was in Alabama one of Trump's biggest and most outspoken and first supporters in the state, really. So now what you have is a situation where Roby is really racing to get on the president's good side. She showed up at the White House a few times. What I think this shows is the kind of pressures that 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 members Republican members of Congress face. If they weren't on board the Trump train, they're now facing pressures to get on board the Trump train. Yeah, and the, the flip side of this is that the other side of the party isn't really fighting back against this. Like we said, Flake and Corker are both leaving. Right. And even more broadly, when you look at a group like – a group that traditionally would be a pillar of the Republican establishment, a group like the Senate Leadership Fund in the case of Mitch McConnell, they're getting on board with some of the more Trumpian candidates that are running to replace these people like Marsha Blackburn. Um, Senate Leadership Fund is totally pleased with Marsha Blackburn running and she's clearly aligning herself more with the president. A big part of Senate Leadership Fund's advertising campaign for Luther Strange mm-hmm. in Alabama, he, he ended up losing, but it was about how he was a supporter of Trump. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really – there's a war for the Republican Party, but at times it really seems like only one side is fighting it. 
Right. It, it's true. I mean, Flake and Corker were in the minority. And, and, and one of the things you hear uh, both Flake and Corker say is that, well, there are people who agree with them. Uh, well, we haven't really hear, heard those people speak out too much, right? I mean, that's just not something that, that that's really happened. And perhaps they're looking at Flake and they're saying that it just doesn't do – it wouldn't do much good for them. You look at what Flake did was that he wrote a book, didn't even tell – party leadership about it, didn't tell the NRSC about it. And this is something that really frustrated the NRSC, which was kind of blindsided when Flake came out with this anti-Trump manifesto. Mm -hmm. But you have other, you perhaps have other uh, Republicans on the Hill saying, look, speaking out against Trump doesn't do you any good politically, so why do it in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and to a certain extent, you know, what is partially keeping this whole coalition together? All you hear about is Republicans right. behind the scenes will bash Trump, right. will mock him, right. will say you know many things that Democrats would say. What is keeping this together for now is the hope for tax reform. They failed on Obamacare repeal. Now they're all in on tax reform. But if tax reform falls apart, I really wonder if we'll start to see uh, more uh, Republicans speaking out against the president. Well, let's let's take a listen to another one of those Republicans we've been talking about speaking out against the president. This is uh, Senator Bob Corker of Tennessee, another Republican who has retired instead of running for reelection in 2018. And uh, he clearly feels liberated by not having to face that Trump friendly party base uh, next year, because here's what he told CNN uh, earlier this week. The president uh, has great difficulty with the truth on many issues. Do you regret supporting him in the election? Uh, well, let's just put it this way. I would not do that again. So he- here's the thing about what Corker is saying and what Flake is saying. And Alex, you just touched on this a little bit. But by, by leaving and not even c- trying to run for reelection, aren't they just making it more likely that they'll be replaced in the Senate by by more pro-Trump Republicans who aren't who would not follow their lead in speaking out uh, or and yeah. Even apart from their elections, aren't isn't the fact that Jeff Flake felt that he had to retire and is saying so out loud a message to other Senate Republicans not to speak out if they value their jobs? Well, well potentially. Look, I mean, the first to the first part of your question, you you look at both Arizona and Tennessee, and there is a very high possibility that uh, at least in terms of winning the Republican nomination, uh, that person is going to be someone who is uh, pretty well aligned with with Trump in Tennessee. Marsha Blackburn right now is the frontrunner for the Republican nomination. Now she's going to potentially face a fight from former Congressman Stephen Fincher. But then you have sort of a, a Trump-esque versus more establishment fight that would play out. People think that Blackburn would probably be the favorite in that, right, as the more Trump-like candidate. And then you have Arizona, where clearly the party establishment now wants someone like Martha McSally or maybe Dave Schweikert to get in the race. But it's far from certain that either of those two would necessarily win the nomination because, well, Kelly Ward is still pretty strong. Uh, She's aligned herself with the president. And then you have potentially others who could get in who are closely aligned with Trump, whether it's someone like Jeff DeWitt, whether it's someone like Robert Graham, whether it's someone like Paul Gosar. It's far from certain. And and here's the interesting thing is that it's going to be interesting to see the extent to which the president gets involved in all these races where you have a Trump-like candidate versus a uh, a non-Trump candidate. And you have in the president someone who has demonstrated time and time again that he's willing to play ball in political races. It's not like Barack Obama, who 
was fairly careful when it came to how to throw his weight around in races. Trump doesn't really seem it, to care very eventually. much. Eventually. You and I have talked about well, this before. Obama right. was very aggressive for the first couple of years, or at right. least his White House was very aggressive, and then they really dialed it back because they felt like they got burned by right. some of these things, right? But, 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 the, but, but Trump, that's true, but Trump doesn't seem to have any reservations about getting involved that in is the number of true. these races. He does not. And, and, to, and, and you talk to people who work for Ed Gillespie, for example, and sometimes when Trump tweets something they didn't, about Gillespie, they didn't even know that it was going to happen ahead of time. So uh, we're dealing with a different kind of White House in a lot of different ways here, including how they deal with political races. Kevin, what about some of the other uh, Republican Senate primaries percolating around the map? I mean, are we seeing kind of the same, apart from Arizona and Tennessee, are we seeing the same dynamics of where the, and certainly it was true in some of the special elections earlier this year, if you, if if there is one thing the Republican base was not interested in, it was a candidate who was speaking out against Trump at that point. And are are there any Republican primary candidates out there who are kind of following Jeff Flake's lead at this point? No. <laughs> I mean, to be to be blunt, I mean, what you're seeing is if you are an establishment candidate, you're sort of trying to blur the lines a little bit. And at the very least, you're not, you know, I mean, Jeff Flake really stuck his head out and wrote a whole book attacking literally the president. Literally wrote a book. Literally wrote an entire book right, right. attacking the president. But, you know, you're not even seeing people saying like, oh, you know, maybe Trump should stop tweeting less and focus more on tax reform, which is the kind of thing you can get sort of – Republican senators will still say stuff like that. Right. Um, you don't even see candidates saying that because it's so unpopular. One thing a few Republicans brought up to me in the case of Arizona, for instance, Martha McSally uh, was another person who said, you know, uh, tr- after the Access Hollywood tape said, you know – this was bad. Trump shouldn't have done that. People were worried Trump would use that against her. And another time she got caught on tape talking about how Trump was causing political problems for House Republicans. And people are worried that just those comments, which were pretty tame, would get used against her in a primary. And so I think there's just a lot of evidence indicating that any criticism of Trump is going to be weaponized. Uh, And I think that's why you're not seeing any of these candidates uh, speak out against him at all. Mm-hmm. One, one point on that is that you had Dean Heller faced kind of a binary choice this summer, whether uh, when he was being attacked by the president's political group over his refusal at the time to support Ob- an Obamacare appeal. And he and, and, and Heller faced Heller when he was under attack could have said, uh, I'm going to I'm going to keep on I'm going to go the flake route and I'm going to attack the president even more. And I'm going to I'm going to double down even as I have a, a primary back at home or I could smooth things over with the White House. He has clearly chosen the latter approach. He is clearly cho- choosing to uh, get much closer to the president. He is clearly choosing to make peace with the White House. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and so in a lot of ways, you look at flake and Heller, and it was sort of like the, a, a tale of two senators, both of whom took two very different approaches here. Alex, one last point. Before, we're going to dive uh, a lot deeper on the, the race to replace Flake in a second. But before we do that, I just want to press you on the, what you mentioned about the House earlier and some of the retirements we've seen in the House so far kind of belonging in the same, this same mold uh, as what we saw with uh, a little bit with, with Flake, you know, um, maybe not the outspoken criticism, but people like Charlie Dent and Ileana Ross-Lettinen and Dave Trott right. saying that uh, they're not really keen on the way things are going right now. Do you think we're going to see more of that in, at the end of this year, beginning of next year? You could see more depending on, and some of this may depend on on, on, on tax reform, whether tax reform passes or not. Because 
keep in mind that a lot of some of this comes down to a donor game. If donors are and, and donors are saying right now that if, they, if tax reform doesn't pass, a lot of them are going to close their wallets. They're going to stop writing checks, and and they're done. If some of these members who are on the fence are reaching out to donors over the holiday season, and those donors are telling them, look, we're just not going to give you any money at this point. We don't feel like we want to help. That could create that could create sort of impetus for more retirements. So it's, it's one of those dynamics that's really worth watching right now. That's going to be really interesting to watch with tax reform coming up. They, they're saying they want to get it done over the next month and a half, two months. And then the, the retirements are going to be the single biggest thing to watch at this point in terms of the, the battle for the House before the primaries start next year, the single biggest factor that will play into that. So we'll keep a very close eye on that. Let's switch gears. Let's let's talk specifically. We've been talking about kind of what what this flake retirement means for the Republican Party in Washington. But let's talk specifically about Arizona for a while. Uh, th- there have been I, I looked up the other night. Our data point for the second segment can be the number two. It's this is just the second time there's been an open Senate race in Arizona since 1994, uh, actually. Uh, and the first one was when Flake ran for his first and now only term in 2012. He won 49% of the vote that year. Republicans have been carrying Arizona every year for a while, but there's this sense that the state has been getting closer, and Trump only carried it by about three, three and a half percentage points in 2016. So, Kevin... This is going to be one of the big battleground races of uh, 2018, one of the few that where Republicans are playing defense. Introduce us to some of the characters here. We mentioned a few of their names. We mentioned Martha McSally and Kelly Ward. Kelly Ward, who's in and was running against Flake. Martha McSally, the congresswoman who is considered a possible candidate. But let's let's start with the Democrat. Let's start with Kirsten Cinema, the congresswoman who jumped into the race earlier this year. Tell us about her. Yeah, Cinema is an interesting character. Uh, she is a rare figure in democratic politics who has really moved to the center, really over sort of the Obama years. Uh, She started out as actually, her political career started, she ran as a Green Party nominee for state legislature back in the early 2000s, and is now, uh, sort of since she won office and in office, has moved more and more to the center, uh, where she's now a blue dog congresswoman. Uh, She votes with Trump about 50% of the time, which is an astoundingly high number for a Democrat. Uh, and she really has become sort of a business-oriented Democrat while still being pretty socially liberal. Uh, she has an interesting backstory. At one point uh, during her childhood, she was her family was living out of a car. Cinema uh, had ended up graduating from high school, I believe, at age sixteen. She's or, she's earned advanced degrees everywhere. I believe she has a law degree, a PhD, and is currently studying for an MBA. She's a very impressive person biographically. Uh, she's also known for having a very sort of running a very tight ship of a political operation. She was a favorite of House Majority Whip Steny Hoyers, or excuse me, House Minority Whip Steny Hoyers when she was in the House. Uh, and she was really uh, one of the DS's top, DSCC's top recruits for this race. So she's definitely who they want to run. Uh, but it's also pro- possible that some Democrats might view her as too moderate. There was some chatter after Flake retired that they should try to get a more liberal person in to challenge her. But for right now, Senator is a pretty clear favorite to earn the Democratic nomination. I just think it's so interesting that, that she's had this transformation. I mean, Alex, you may remember like when she ran for Congress for the first time in, in 2012, the, the Republicans essentially attacked her as a communist like right. from her, from her uh, record in Arizona. And now she, I, she, she's one of the few who's been Democrats who's been endorsed by the Chamber of Commerce in recent years, I think, um, and you know, has just this kind of moderate profile. Right. She, she's seen as sort of a, a, a dynamic figure in, in, in Arizona politics, someone who 
is 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 pretty formidable and someone who a lot of Republicans in the state are are awfully worried about. And and one of the interesting things that you, you, you come across and you talk to Republicans in Arizona is that they feel like they would be much better off, or a lot of them feel like they'd be much better off with a female uh, as, as, as a nominee. And so that's why some people are saying that maybe Kelly Ward would be a good nominee for Republicans. Maybe someone like Martha McSally would be a good nominee for Republicans. But, but the, she, there's a lot of concern in Republican circles that Democrats, no matter who Republicans nominate, are going are to start out this general, general election with, with, with an advantage potentially. Yeah, I think that's interesting. And I think one thing you sort of noted there, the other big character here, the person who right now you would kind of – almost by default, we have to say is almost the favorite for the Republican nomination until someone else gets in, is Kelly Ward. Uh, She is someone with a uh, pretty long history of controversial statements. Most recently, when John McCain was um, uh, diagnosed with brain cancer, she said, you know, McCain should immediately retire so that the governor can appoint me to the seat, uh, which was sort of people viewed as very inappropriate. A little uncouth. Yeah, a little little uncouth uncouth. um, for obvious reasons. Uh, And she's someone, interestingly, who, while Republicans in D.C. essentially view her as unelectable and think she would almost certainly lose to basically any Democrat who runs against her, some Republicans in Arizona, including some who aren't necessarily ideologically aligned with her, actually think she could maybe pull it off if anything, if not for anything, just because it's a midterm year and Arizona is a Republican-leaning state. Right. Alex, um, tell, tell us, though, about, you know, we've, we've seen uh, in, in the wake of Flake's retirement, we saw there was news today that the Arizona congressional delegation was kind of meeting to talk about right. who was interested in this. You mentioned Congressman Dave Schweikert earlier, but he has kind of, he's, he's since said... He's terribly interested. Yeah, and he's, I think he said he was potentially more interested in running for governor down the line right. and that he wasn't sure he had the fire in the belly for this. But everyone is looking at Martha McSally for this. And this is a, a two-term congresswoman with an incredible biography. Kind of right. t- Tell us a little bit about her. She she is uh, she's a really interesting figure. She's someone who uh, is, is sort of a deeply cautious kind of politician, which has led some people to wonder whether she will actually run or not, given the concerns that perhaps 2018 could be a better Democratic year than a, more of a Republican year. But but she's really interesting in that. I believe she's the first female fighter pilot ever. And in in, in a in a state where uh, you know that that is incredibly the the fighter pilot industry or the 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 flying industry, the airplane <laughs> industry is incredibly important, and and so um, I'm sure we'll get reader email on that. Uh, <laughs> the uh, fighter pilot, yeah, industry exactly. Is very yeah, I'm, I'm sure I'll hear about that one. But but I think that 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 a lot of people think that she she really has appeal from sort of across the spectrum. The question though is whether she gets she has trouble from the right in, in in a primary does she have problems from someone like Kelly Ward does she have problems from someone like Jeff DeWitt does she have problems from someone who runs as being very closely aligned with the president who are going to point to all the same or whatever statements she does have in which she seems to have criticized the president and th- this is also someone who is part of the reason she's seen as politically formidable is that she's been holding down, she held down very easily in 2016 a swing right. district, the district that used to be represented by Gabrielle Giffords, right? And uh, and so she has kind of crafted a record that worked very well there. And I think she won with something like 57% of the vote in, in 2016 after I, I think each of the last three races there had gone to recounts. Uh, and so... 
you know, you, you, you can see that, but, but that's, it's a fact of life in primaries for both parties at this point that being able to win a swing district sometimes opens you up to things that maybe don't play so well in a primary. There's one other thing here that makes this race uh, interesting, which is that the Arizona political situation right now is extraordinarily complex for, for, for a multitude of reasons, really. And in and, and, and part, that has to do with the question surrounding John McCain's seat. Of course, he is, uh, he is of poor health right now. There are questions about how much longer he may or may not want to serve. And, and so if he were to depart for some reason, that could create a situation where that seat would, would, would become vacant. And so you would have the possibility of Arizona having potentially two vacant uh, Senate seats. And making situations even more complex is the Arizona political schedule, which is the fact they have their their primary is around Labor Day, which means that you have a two month general election. Wow. It is literally a, a, a it, it's like a sprint, mm-hmm. and and so uh, how that how people whether that shapes some people's decision about whether they want to get in or not uh, is is something worth watching as as well. That's a great point. Mm-hmm. Um, and among other things, I mean, you know, Democrats were wondering for such a long time uh, who their nominee was going to be for this seat. And if they have to find another one mm-hmm. for, for another Senate race, that would be um, that would be very uh, potentially difficult for them. Mm-hmm. Um, Kevin, what, what about some of the other Republicans who are who are kind of in, in the mix here uh, in, in terms of the, the flake seat now that now that flake is not there? Mm-hmm. Are there any other people who look more more likely to run to, to jump into this primary that had been shaping up for a long time is just a one-on-one mm-hmm. matchup between him and Kelly Ward. I think two of the names that uh, Alex mentioned, uh, I think, are names people are circling back around to. Jeff DeWitt, who is the state treasurer and is also a top official on the Trump campaign, played a role there, uh, is definitely someone who people thought his interest in the seat had waned. Uh, he uh, basically seemed to have ruled it out at different points. People are now sort of returning to him as a potential candidate. Uh, he's someone who, while he is very closely allied with Trump, might still be acceptable to the establishment. Uh, and some talking to some sort of Republicans aligned with Senate Leadership Fund and the NRSC, they seem to be okay with him. Uh, Robert Graham is a former state GOP chair who's also pretty closely aligned with Trump. Uh, he's another person people might look to. The interesting thing here is if there is a multi-candidate primary, how exactly this breaks down, how many establishment-oriented candidates are there, how many Trump-oriented candidates are there, how many candidates are there that try to bridge that gap. Um, I think one thing that is important to note here is that Republicans were actually relieved by Flake's retirement. They basically believe that any of these people have a better chance of winning than Flake did. From a political perspective. From a political because perspective. Because as we talked about, from from a you know, from an institutional perspective, there are a lot of Republicans who in, in Washington certainly, mm-hmm. maybe not maybe less so in Arizona, but in Washington who are sad to see him go. Mm-hmm. But they had essentially what you're they had essentially come to the conclusion that he couldn't win. Yeah, they essentially they thought he was going to lose to Kelly Ward and by a pretty significant margin. And then establishment Republicans here in DC think Ward would almost certainly lose. So they basically were viewing this as a lost seat. I think it's it's very interesting to look at Flake's situation and just in general the dangers of angering your own base. Flake had a situation where he was attacking the president but still basically voting as a down-the-line Republican. So he was alienating his own party's voters while not necessarily winning over any Democratic or independent voters who were opposing, for example, the GOP plans to repeal Obamacare. 
and so he just sort of ended up as a man without a country, whereas you compare that to even John McCain, who has also has, you know, stuck his finger in the eye of Republican primary voters over the years. He was still able to win his primary. And then McCain, because he's been around so long, has a lot of loyalty from some sort of moderate Democrats and tremendous popularity with independents in the state. So he was able to pretty comfortably win re-election. Flake just wasn't in that situation. Uh, and part of that, some Republicans have said, is because Flake wasn't doing a great job at keeping tabs on Arizona in general, even before uh, he started attacking Trump. Mm. That's a great point. Um, one one final thought just to uh, to end this on. Arizona, whether if Kelly Ward ends up winning the nomination, if Martha, Sa- Martha McSally gets in and wins the Republican nomination, and either of them ends up running against Kirsten Sinema, there have only been a handful of Senate races in U.S. history that have featured two female nominees going up uh, against each other. And there, you know, there's still relatively few women in the Senate compared to you know, overall population. I think it's in the 20s. So that that's a potentially interesting and historic uh, aspect of all this, too. Um, one other name, this is a wild card out there, but but Doug Ducey, people are talking about him, the governor. Now, he is running for re-election right now, but you do hear his name popping up among Republicans as someone who could potentially win both uh, the primary and a general election, uh, given his popularity right now. Uh, I'm not saying that's going to happen, but I, that is a name that I've heard in the last 24 hours or so. Oh, that's interesting. When when stuff like this happens, yeah. it seems like it kind of Everyone, break, yeah. breaks the dam right. a little bit on, on right. everything that might be jangling around in people's heads. Right. No, it, 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 it's true. I mean, b- before this is over, you're going to hear just about everyone's name uh, floated in in uh, in one way or the other. All right. Well, we will keep an eye on that. As Alex mentioned, we've got like eleven months to John go, Shattuck. basically. Before, <laughs> eleven months to go, basically, before uh, that primary comes up. A uh, little little more than a year until the general. Thank you guys for both uh, coming Thank in you. and talking Arizona. All right. Great to be on. All right. For our third segment today, we're going to shift gears a little bit and talk about digital political advertising. And that's in the news a lot right now because of everything swirling around the investigation into Russian meddling in the 2016 election. And so we've got uh, two of Politico's tech reporters here to talk with us. Nancy Scola. Hi, Nancy. Hey, Scott. And Ashley Gold. Hey. Thank you both for being here. So our data point for segment number three is 3,000. That's about how many Facebook ads uh, about the 2016 election were placed by a Russian company last year. They're now the subject of multiple investigations. uh, And they've also sparked this uh, parallel effort in Congress, at the Federal Election Commission, and in some other places that we'll talk about to close some regulatory loopholes to make sure this doesn't happen again. So... Um, Ashley, let's start off with a big piece of legislation along these lines was just introduced in Congress. Can you tell us a little bit about what's in that bill, uh, what exactly they're trying to do to prevent uh, foreign intervention in in elections via digital advertising again, and, uh, you know, who's involved? So this is the Honest Ads Act, which was introduced uh, quite recently in the Senate by Amy Klobuchar, Mark Warner, and Senator John McCain. Um, They worked very hard to get a Republican on board so that it would be viewed as a bipartisan uh, piece of legislation that was really about national security and the integrity of our elections and our democracy more than anything. And um, basically what the act does is it aims to put... Uh, digital advertising on under the same rules that TV, radio, and satellite already have. Um, those types of platforms already have to disclose the buyers of their ads in a public file that you can access just as a citizen. So 
What this does is it requires digital platforms with at least 50 million monthly viewers to have a public file of these ads um, by any person or group who spends more than $500 on the ads. So it also wants the online platforms to make reasonable efforts to ensure that people are not purchasing ads to influence the um, American electorate. There is a House companion bill by Representatives Derek Kilmer and Mike Kaufman, and um, we are just kind of waiting to see what happens next with this bill. Yeah, so, Nancy, what, what exactly was the, the, the loophole that, that these Russian groups kind of drove through in the first place that, yeah. that allowed them to do it? So the context here is that the last piece of major campaign finance reform legislation was passed before social media was a thing. So and the rise of social media happened around sort of, you know, in the early parts of the 2000s and getting close to the 2008-2012 election. Facebook and Google went to the Federal Election Commission and asked for some clarity on how to interpret uh, federal election law to applying it to social media ads. The FEC uh, offered a little bit of uh, clarity to Google to a plan that Google had so that if if users click through to an ad, they could see who had paid for the ad. So they signed off on that. Facebook sort of asked for a complete exemption, saying we can't. It's impractical to put ads on. Uh, excuse me, to put disclosures on online advertising. The FEC could not come to a decision on that. Um, so they kind of kicked it back over to Facebook, and Facebook interpreted that to say that they didn't have to put disclosures on. Mm, and now here we are. And here so, we are. So basically, you have kind of anyone can run. A, uh, a digital and and because of the nature of this, it's with um, you know the the advertisers are essentially deciding who sees it, right? If someone runs a political ad, not only are they in this file, but you're like broadcasting, you're broadcasting to the world, especially on on um, uh, broadcast networks mm-hmm. with digital advertising. Absolutely. It's so narrowly tailored, yeah. And and someone might see it quickly and then put it out of mind, but it kind of sticks with them. There's no way to there's there might be no way for someone keeping an eye on an election to know Absolutely. that someone was advertising in it. And part of the legislation that Ashley discussed is uh, requires the companies to um, keep tabs on how many times the ads were viewed, when they started being run, when the run of them was over, and that um, some of the investigators in the Russia situation have talked about the fact that they need that sort of information to make sense of the strategic thinking behind the placing of the ads. So it's not enough to just know, okay, this ad perhaps ran once, but this ad perhaps ran once in a targeted district in Florida. And so we can better understand what sort of the political objective was behind it. Got it. So Ashley, what are the prospects for passage of this bill? Are there any Republicans interested besides McCain and and, uh, the House co-sponsor you mentioned, Mike Kaufman, who is uh, one of those swing district Republican members? It's kind of hard to say right now. Um, A House... uh subcommittee uh, oversight committee that looks at IT had a hearing just this week and uh, Representative Will Hurd, you know, seemed really concerned about Russian meddling in the election via these ads. But when asked if he was going to sign on to the House version of the legislation, he said he wasn't exactly sure that this was the right move or or what we should do to deal with this situation, that he was, you know, supportive of his colleagues' legislation, but he didn't know if he would actually sign on, even though he convened a whole hearing about the topic. Uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, who just convened a hearing over in the Senate Judiciary Committee with these groups, uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Google, has said that he's looking at it. Other key Republicans have said that they're looking at it. Um, When asked if uh, leadership has the support of this bill, um, no one's really sure yet. Uh, Senator Klobuchar has said that she would like to attach it to one of the must-pass pieces of legislation. And with uh, Senator McCain's position on the Hill, that that could happen. 
But like like uh, we were discussing earlier, a lot of people are waiting for this November 1st hearing um, before multiple um, congressional committees with these tech companies and kind of waiting to hear what they have to say for themselves before deciding, yes, this is something where we need to jump in and regulate. That's really interesting. So if they don't end up passing new legislation and if the FEC doesn't doesn't end up taking its own action, which is it's you could you you could wait a long time for the FEC to take action on anything. So it's probably best not to bet on it. That puts a lot of the burden on what these companies like Facebook and Twitter and Google and others are preemptively announcing that they're going to do in terms of self-regulation of Mm -hmm. political ads. So Nancy, what what's happening in that space? Because yeah. that seems like the one that could end up having the practical effects at yeah. the end of the day. So there has been, as you mentioned, a sudden burst of self-regulation <laughs> that the companies have embraced in, in just the last couple of days, uh, about the same time they got invitations <laughs> to testify on Capitol Hill. It's all coming at once. On the, on the topic. And uh, pretty much what the companies, both of the companies, excuse me, Twitter and Facebook did was announce that they were going to put more transparency around the ads in terms of aggregating the ads in one place so that you can see if an advertiser is running multiple versions of an advertisement, you can see them all in one place to sort of get a sense of a broader picture of what they're attempting to do. Uh, The, you know, sort of obvious caveat there is that it's voluntary. And if, you know, Mark Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey, the CEOs of those two companies, decide in six months that they'd no longer like to (laughs) have that sort of transparency around their advertisements, then they they can certainly roll that back. So... And so basically what they're talking about is creating right now instead of I, colloquially, they're, colloquially they're called dark ads, right, because because there's no way for someone who's not targeted by them to see them. And so what they're saying is they're going to create pages where even if you're not targeted by an ad, you can go see the ads that are targeting other voters, other districts, yeah, stuff like that. Absolutely. And for obvious reasons, a lot of advertisers are not big fans of the idea because they think that they, you know, there's a strategic advantage to be able to target ads to certain sort of viewers. And that's not necessarily nefarious. It's just sort of a strategic, you know, serving up to viewers what it what it works best on them, what they might most like to see. Um, so they don't love the idea that you could you could compare your ads, the ads that you're seeing to the ads that, you know, a, you're a, a friend or family member is saying. Right. Well, that gets into kind of this wonky uh, section of of campaigns, right? Where especially with TV advertising, like all of the um, with these public files and all of and and the fact that they broadcast over the airways, they're all available. Campaigns spend have to spend <laughs> a lot of money to like gather them, but yeah. they, you know, and the pricing information. They're always comparing what other campaigns paid to make sure that they're not getting a leg up against your campaign, and yeah. and so on and so forth, and then comparing the content to make sure that you know there isn't a message uh, sneaking out there, but. Um, so in addition to the companies uh, pledging to create these pages to police who is um, advertising with them and to post that stuff, uh, they're also kind of behind the scenes trying to trying to shape uh, the legislation in case that does pass. Right, Ashley? Yeah, um, we've uh, written a story about how Facebook and other groups that are involved here have been in with these offices, uh, specifically with Senator um, Klobuchar and Warner's offices to kind of talk about this. And they, you know, have said that they are willing to look at any reasonable piece of legislation. And even after having seen the legislation, now that it's officially out, they they say they're looking forward to continuing conversations with lawmakers about, you know, reasonable pieces of legislation. So, you know, they can talk all they want about being open to it. Um, but what they're doing behind the scenes to maybe make the bill a little more toothless than the lawmakers want it to be um, 
you know, it was kind of yet to be seen. Um, they have a lot of lobbying power on the Hill, and they spend a lot of money. These are some of the big, biggest corporations in terms of lobbying expenditures in, in, For sure. in Congress at this point, right? Yeah. There's a wrinkle here, though, that the companies – I have a working theory that the companies would benefit from a little bit of regulation at this point. There, there needs to be – they're probably not going to get out of this Russia situation without being reined in a bit by Washington. And this is legislation that they um, most likely can live with. This doesn't impose a tremendous burden on them. So if they can get this bill passed in a, in a sort of tolerable form for them, it might, uh, it might actually be to their benefit. So I actually have a, been sort of curious whether or not they're going to try to gin up some co-sponsors for it once they get the bills into uh, the shape that they'd like to see them since the bills aren't getting much traction on their own. Oh, that's really interesting. So what else, what else should we be looking out for on this? You know, we've got committee hearings coming up. We've got the, this, you know, what, what else is, is coming down the pike? Well, every day we're getting some sort of new disclosure from a social media company um, with Twitter announcing this morning that they would stop allowing RT, the English language RT, um, and Sputnik to purchase ads on their platform. So they're doing that. Um, Facebook has made announcements in the past couple of weeks. It seems like they're really trying to get out ahead of this hearing by, uh, you know, divulging information and being as transparent as they can to look good going into the hearing. Yeah, I think we might see a Friday uh, data dump from these companies sure. in the run up to the uh-huh. hearing of some of the 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 posts and ads that they haven't already disclosed. Oh, interesting. So, uh, quick, right before we wrap, uh, you know, lightning round. Do you think do you think legislation passes on this, Nancy, before before the end of the, this Congress? Uh, I do, but I wouldn't put a lot of money on it. Okay. What about you, Ashley? <laughs> My gut feeling is pretty cynical, <laughs> but. I don't know. We'll see. I just I do I, I think Congress has to put some points on the board when it comes to the the Russian involvement in the election, and this is something that that they you know there's nothing else that's sort of plausible on the horizon. So this might if be they're the going to pass they anything, it uh, might be this. It just strikes me it's like the any talk of the Russian investigation has become so tinged by partisanship, and, and that I I wonder how eager Republicans in the House or Senate would be to to jump on board with something like this. And, yeah, and, and that's why uh, Klobuchar and Warner didn't want to intro it until they had McCain. And what was the process of getting him on board? What happened there? It in- took weeks and weeks because, uh, you know, we got word that this bill was coming. They circulated a Dear Colleague letter to try to get um, other lawmakers on board. And, you know, I was in talks with Klobuchar's office for a while, and they, they were they were really working on it, and they, they finally got him. I mean, he's, you know, Senate Armed Services Committee, and he's obviously has a past with dealing with election campaign finance and that they got him on board. So, Wow. All right. Well, that'll be interesting to watch. We'll have to keep an eye out to see whether any other Republicans uh, sign on to that or uh, and or, uh, uh, you know, what what the FEC does and how, how the companies themselves are are reacting. Um, thank you both for being here. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you. And Ashley, thank you. Thank you. Uh, and as always, a big thank you to you, our listeners, for joining us. Remember, if you have questions for us, you can email us at nerdcast at politico.com. And remember to subscribe, rate us, and write written reviews of the Nerdcast on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. Once again, thank you for listening. Thank you to our executive producer, Bridget Mulcahy, our illustrator, Bill Cookman, and our researcher and Politico playbook producer, Zach Montalaro. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you again next week. 